This week on Wealth Track, a rare in-depth interview with great investor Bill Miller on his pandemic perspective, what's changed, what hasn't. Investment legend Bill Miller is next on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, a Leg Mason company, Miller Value Funds, Royce and Associates, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. Today marks the launch of our 17th season on public television. Time is flying. And we are celebrating it by reminding ourselves and all of you why we launched WealthTrack in the first place. It was to reserve a half an hour a week for thoughtful, in-depth discussions with financial thought leaders, great investors, and other best-in-class professionals to help you and us build financial security to last a lifetime. We are marking the start of the season with the introduction of a new series, what we are calling the Pandemic Pivot, the rapid economic, market, and geopolitical shifts we are experiencing during the global health crisis. Through lockdowns and reopenings, the changes have been dramatic and swift. The huge, largely government-induced shutdown of global commerce ended the record-breaking economic recovery and bull market in the U.S. The massive monetary and fiscal stimulus in response led to the shortest bear market in history and what could turn out to be the briefest recession ever, although the jury is still out on that one. As longtime WealthTrack guest Wall Street's number one economist Ed Hyman has been telling clients, since May, economic numbers have evolved from really bad to better to starting a new expansion to the current it's a V, although Hyman also says that it could turn into an L to be determined. To make sense of these changes, we are turning to a great investor who has been a regular WealthTrack guest since the beginning. He is Bill Miller, founder, owner, and chief investment officer of Miller Value Partners, a firm he founded in 1999 while working at Leg Mason, but took over completely in 2017. Miller holds the unbeaten record of beating the S&P 500 for 15 consecutive years from 1991 to 2005 with the Leg Mason Capital Management Value Trust Fund. His flagship Miller Opportunity Trust Fund, which he created in 1999, has $1.5 billion in assets and has beaten the S&P since the market's March 2009 bottom, producing 20% plus annualized returns versus the S&P 500's 17% returns. For more than a decade, Miller has been aided by Samantha McLemore, co-portfolio manager since 2014 and assistant portfolio manager since 2008. Miller Value Partners has been a WealthTrack sponsor over the past year. I asked Miller his views on how the world has changed since the pandemic. I'm going to, I'm going to answer that kind of obliquely to start, which is it reminds me of when, when people used to ask Jeff Bezos, what, you know, how are things going to change in the future and how do, you, how do you plan for that? And he said, well, the first thing I want to know is what's not going to change. So once I know what's not going to change, then you know, everything else is kind of up for grabs. So I would say that what's not going to change is basically that the way in which we lived our lives before the pandemic, what we'll try and do is live them the same way that we did, but adjusted for the pandemic. So okay. all of the things that we did normally, we're gonna to wanna to do normally again to the extent that we can. In the early times as we are right now in the midst of this thing, social distancing, 
maybe shelter in place, different, you know, lockdowns, which I think are in the in the past. But um, but you know, travel travel is very slowly coming back. Conventions, sports, all those things will come back, maybe in a different form. So I would say that that the only things that are really going to change are things that are, were already changing beforehand. And so the digital transformation of the economy is one. Shopping online, the people base didn't want to have grocery stores, uh, you know, try and order through your, you know, order through an app to the grocery store. But now that's changing. That's changing significantly. So that's really accelerating that kind of that kind of thing. I think that, that what else is going to change is that we're going to have a lot fewer businesses when we come out of this. You know, we, we've got, already got high unemployment, but there's no telling how many restaurants and small businesses will have to close because of the uh, because of the lockdowns. So that's going to be very positive for the ones that were you know, able to go through the Walmart and Target and, and companies like that. And then, of course, the trans digital transformation, all the work from home companies got a big acceleration. And it's really it's not something that is a one time thing to where we'll tend to go once all the stores are open again and the retailers that will kind of will drift back to that. I think you've jumped ahead probably a year or two in terms of where we would have been without the pandemic. And then one, something else that is, that is going to change, or maybe it isn't going to change, depending how you look at it. But what the financial crisis in 08 and 09 led to was effectively, um, uh, it shocked people so much that they became risk and volatility phobic and poor, took money out of mutual equity mutual funds for most of the next ten, last 10 years and put it in bond funds, which worked bond out funds. well. It worked out well because bond yields are now you know, just off the lowest level in, lowest level in history. And we saw the same thing this time, which there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal about how over 30% of Fidelity's clients over the age of 65 sold 100% of their stocks and put the money into cash. So that same fear and, and seeking for safety is going to be with us a long time, which means that probably rates will stay lower for longer and that that has implications for equity valuations down the road. So, of course, for somebody over 65, that makes sense. But, I mean, it doesn't make sense to go, you know, 100% cash, but it certainly makes sense to take risk off the table uh, because you're, you're not going to replace that income. Investors are still fleeing stocks for the most part, right, and still going into bonds. Does that tell you anything? Uh, yes, it reminds me of something of uh, my old friend whom you may have interviewed, Ralph Wenger, when he used to run the... Uh, the Acorn Fund, mm -hmm. and Ralph, Ralph has a degree from MIT, and one of the things he used to say is risk is conserved in the system, meaning there's always the risk there, it just moves around. And so I think right now that the risk has, has moved to a level that makes bonds not problematic in the next probably year or two, but very problematic beyond that. You know, we had a 35-year uh, bear market in bonds from 1946 to 1981. Right. And now we've got, you know, we've got a 39 year bull market in bonds. And I think that's, you know, that will end at some at some point. I do think rates aren't going to go back to, you know, 14 percent like we saw in November of 1981. But they could easily go that 10 year could go from, from 65 or 70 basis points to three or four percent. And if you're in that if you're in that space, you're going to get just, you know, devastated with your money in that. Bill, let, let me take it up to an, an even higher level than what's going on in the markets, and then we will definitely go back, come back to the markets. So this government-induced shutdown that we've had, um, which I, I don't think in history we've ever seen something like this except in times of war. And, you know, we've got the record uh, fiscal and monetary stimulus. 
Um, we basically have the government dominance in private markets. So do you not think that they could have some permanent effect on, you know, what's, what's largely been, you know, a private economy, for instance, in this country, certainly? I think I think that question is open at this point. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that the governments initially, when they didn't understand the the pandemic and how deadly it might be, uh, I think that they reacted in the only sensible way that they could. But I think that I think that as that the nature of the pandemic became clearer, uh, there's a lot of overreach on the part of governments, especially the U.S. government, with respect to the sh uh, shutdowns and lockdowns and. I do think that there'll be a lot more rationality as this thing winds down. And, and I don't think the governments will, because it'll be too devastating to the economy to try and go through again what they, what they did before. Right, and right. I think that's good, by the way. Uh-huh. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, I mean, the, the, you know, the positive side of the fact that so many businesses are, are going to fail is that the remaining businesses are going to be stronger and do better. But in the meantime, you know, when you look at uh, that small businesses, I mean, 30 million small businesses in this country with, uh, you know, five or fewer employees and, and, and they are, you know, they're the bulk of the, of the, of employment, of the workforce. So if, 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 if a certain percentage, a healthy percentage of those, you know, fail, um, we've got some big problems in this economy. I think that's one of the worst parts of this whole thing. And, uh, you know, I, it's just an open question, again, about what's going to happen there. But I, I don't understand why, and I haven't heard a good explanation why, if, if the requirement was that, um, that Walmart and Target, for example, could remain open, but, you know, smaller variety stores and things had to close, well, Walmart and, and Target were, had to do social distancing. They had to do this. Right. Why, why didn't they allow any business to do that and stay open? I didn't see why they required them to be closed. In that regard, it's not like it's not like the small businessman really wants to infect a lot of people or, you know, have that happen. I think they'd easily be compliant rather than lose their jobs and lose their business. But the thing that worries me is what I alluded to and you mentioned earlier, which is the governments, the legislatures and the governors feeling like that they can be involved at a micro level deciding which businesses are open, which businesses aren't, you know, who gets, to, you know, who has to wear what kind of, you know, what kind of clothes. And the whole thing gets politicized in this highly charged thing. And they've certainly been emboldened by what they've been able to do here, whether it's right or wrong, they, they're exercising powers that they didn't have before. One of the you know, primary themes that financial journalists such as myself have been covering is this notion uh, that, you know, we've got a, a damaged economy and, and yet the markets, you know, in this incredible bull market and people are calling it the great disconnect. You have a different view. Yeah, I, I, I'm astonished at that because I guess people are unwilling to actually look and see what the connection is historically between the market and the economy, something you can figure out or find out in 10 minutes. And there is no connection between the two statistically. So from 1930 through 2019, the correlation coefficient on a one-year basis between economic growth and stock market is, is 0 0.09, meaning basically none. There's no, it's, it's random. And then if you say, oh, that's, but let's look at it differently. Let's look at rolling 10-year periods. So, so rolling each year, but taking a long enough period that those one years sequentially, you know, won't, won't distort it. Good. Then it's minus, minus 0 0.04, meaning it's negatively correlated. So when the economy grows, the market tends to go down at the margin. 
So that would, again, if, if people are aware of that, and again, you can look anecdotally and, and see just recently. So what's, you know, what did the stock market do in the fourth quarter of 2018? It fell 20% peak to trough, and we had the worst December since December of 1931, the beginning of the Great Depression, right. and worse than December of 1941 when Pearl Harbor was bombed, which wasn't exactly expected, right? And what happened that quarter? Nothing. The economy grew strongly. Unemployment continued to fall. Profits. But what happened was people just got worried because the Fed was tightening. So a lot, a lot more things go into where the market is than just just the direction of the, you know, the direction of the economy. Same thing. Right now we're following a pattern in the economy which is almost identical with that of 2009. So the market bottomed in early March of 2009. It bottomed here in late March. Uh, we had a rally, significant rally, into early June. And then the market had a 10% pullback. This is, this is both times, 2009 and, and now. And so then after that, after that pullback, the market churned around a bit, which it looks like it's doing now. And then we rallied you know, uh, persistently into the end of the year. And that, I think, is the market is at least following that playbook because what's happening also is that you have massive fiscal stimulus, you have massive uh, uh, money supply growth, and things are getting better. You know, consumer spending was up a record 8%. The uh, retail sales were up 17%. I know, but Bill, from like, <laughs> completely collapsed, so of course they're up. I mean, is that... But the, but the market, as I've, as I've said many times, the market yeah, no. predicts the economy. The economy does not predict the market. And the market looks forward several months, you know, tending four to six months. And it looks like, it looks like you, you, uh, you know, all the economists that I, I read think that basically this quarter, you know, is this quarter is the one that will be the worst quarter. Well, the worst. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, and then the next quarter, so the, the third quarter, will probably be a growth quarter. So, and then the fourth quarter will be a stronger growth quarter. So why would the market, when you have the Fed pumping in massive amounts of stuff, you have in inflation at zero, you have interest rates effectively at zero, and you have corporate profits, you know, which have bottomed and will be starting up, and, and dividends have probably bottomed and will be starting up again, why would the market do anything but go up in that environment? The question is, how much will it go up? Right. And I think, and I think the, you know, the consensus numbers right now are around you know, 100, close to $160 for this year. The S&P 500. S&P 500, the market's around 3,000 today. And so that puts it at a little under 20 times earnings, it'd be 3,200. That doesn't seem excessive when interest rates are near zero and inflation is near zero. And in a market where, where stocks, many stocks are expensive, many stocks aren't expensive. I mean, you can buy, you know, you can buy high quality home builders like Lennar, which has outperformed for 25 years at 10 times which earnings. Which is one of your holdings, right. Yeah. There's a concentration in what's driving the market, and it certainly is, you know, companies like, you know, Facebook and, and Amazon and Apple um, and Google uh, comprise, I think it's 40% uh, of the NASDAQ and like 20% of the S&P 500. So it, is, is that something that should disturb us, that the fact that the, the performance uh, is in such a narrow and small group of stocks? Well, I, I think sometimes the answer is yes and sometimes the answer is no. And I think right now it makes perfect sense for those names to be the leaders because all, all of them sold off indiscriminately, you know, when the market collapsed in that four-week period. 
But then mm -hmm. they've all come back, and, and many, if not all the names you mentioned, are now up for the year. And that's because it took the market a couple of weeks to realize, wait a minute, these companies' earnings will be relatively unaffected by this whole thing, and their market position will be stronger. So they, they kind of reverting back to where they were before this pandemic because they're not really affected by the pandemic. And the valuations right. on those names, exception of Netflix, which is, which is quite expensive, but the valuation on those other names is not demanding. I mean, a Amazon, which is up, I think, 35% or so this year, trades right in the middle, right in the median price to sales that it's traded at for the last five years. So, and it's still growing at you know, 25 to 30% a year, which means that it ought to go up 25% you know, or so a year if its valuation isn't, just stays the way it was before the pandemic and, and people weren't too worried about it three or four years ago. The other part, other part of the market is that the median stock is still down you know, probably 20% in mm -hmm. the S&P 500. So that's in general, because those names have been hit by the economic slowdown and some like you know, uh, the airlines, the, the cruise lines, people like that, the Disney's of the world, the, the parks like Cedar Fair, those things have had their business just wiped out. Uh, and, and the market reflects that. And they've come back from the worst levels. And the reason they've come back from the worst levels is that their business isn't at the worst levels. It's come back, although not enough to have them make money yet. But even Delta said they're going to be cash neutral, they expect, by the end of the year. So I, I think it's, you know, the market's pretty much accurately reflecting the various parts that have been hurt the most and have been hurt the least. That's you know one interesting aspect of this uh, this pandemic-induced uh, shutdown and the damage that it's caused uh, is when you look back at, for instance, the you know the, the Great Recession that it was primarily the financial sector that was hit hard, and so now we have the tourist sector and the restaurant sector. Is this kind of you know typical that you have this kind of rotating damage? depending on what the downturn, the cyclical downturn involved. Yeah, I think the market's pretty good at sorting that stuff out. So in 08 and 09, I mean, the financial system itself was on the verge of collapsing, which would have been far more devastating than anything that we certainly saw back then. If it hadn't been for TARP and the Fed finally getting its act together, the system you know, could have imploded. And, and you know, that would have been much worse for Main Street than anything that, that happened with, with unemployment. But if you go back to that time, yeah, I mean, you, the, all the banks were down 80, 90 percent at, at some point. They were talking about nationalizing them in January mm -hmm. of 09, even even after TARP. But utilities and consumer staples, they sailed right through it because they weren't really affected by this, except or not specific. They were the safest part of the equity market. They, they were affected, but they were the least affected. And bonds, you know, bonds, of course, were a, a winner at that point in time. Anything that was like a bond proxy was a winner. So the market gets it sorted out reasonably well, though not not perfectly, and there are pockets of opportunity always. But um, but when you there's a reason for the, the sorting out that it's done in this thing, and it makes reasonable sense to me. The big risk, and and you know they they always say that the, the market you know hates uncertainty, and so the biggest uncertainty really is whether or not we're going to have a you know a, a second wave. Uh, which we seem to be having, or at least maybe it's just an extension of the first wave of uh, of COVID-19 cases, and uh, and the other uh, you know second wave that you know your friend and my friend Ed Hyman uh, talks about is the second wave effects of the the shutdown, which you and I alluded to before. But the fact is that you know he's kept count of you know really the hundreds of 
layoffs that we're seeing announced. These are laggard, you know, they're, they lag the damage, but we're seeing more and more. That's actually increasing, not decreasing. So is, couldn't that be a, a real risk to corporate earnings going forward and therefore to the market? I, I doubt it, and the reason I doubt okay. it is that is that I think that um, all of these, you know, Macy's announced what 3,900 people today in, the, in management are going to be let go. Right. All all the economists understood that there would be different; these things would happen at different different pace. So I think I think if the question comes that the actual unemployment rate, you know, starts up or you know, new claims start up more than people are expecting, that would be a significant risk because okay. that would indicate that, that you know, we're, having a, you know, we're falling back into a, a problem. So, but I, I, don't, I don't see that happening so far. It's just, it's just that different layoffs are happening at different, different points in time. But you know, all the companies that we talk to say that, that business bottomed in April and May was better. And, I, and June, is, you know, June has been uh, stronger still. Again, we're not talking about a gigantic recovery, but we're talking about things getting better. And I think that will tend to pull other people into the labor force. So you're not going to hear about the companies that are rehiring people because that, that they just laid off or that they more or less furloughed. So they just sent them home for a while. So I'm not too worried about that. I would be, I would be very worried if there was a true second wave that led again to, to shutdowns. I don't think, I think that- this, Of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 of COVID-19. Because I, I think that what you're seeing, and the, you know, the front page of the New York Times today was the CDC said, well, probably 20 million people are inf infected instead of 2 million. We, we've managed, we got 2 million that we got, but when you look at the, you know, at the serology test, a lot more people have antibodies. Well, that's, that's very good because uh, we didn't know that, and that the hospitalizations that we had haven't changed. So that means that the severity of COVID-19 is far, far less than we thought it was. And, and I think that's, that's all the data is consistent with that. And what that means is, so what, what, it might be, you know, some of, the, some of the areas that they tested, there were like 50 times as many people instead of just 10 times as many people. So we don't know, you know, how many people have been infected. But the fact is that as that ratio, if that ratio goes up, that's very good for the, you know, it's very good for the economy, it's very good for the market. Because in addition to whether it might lead to herd immunity or not, it means that this thing is already the death rate is down. You know, maybe it's double the normal flu rate, but it's certainly not, you know, 10 times the normal flu rate or 20 times the normal flu rate, which would again indicate that the government will not react the same way if the deaths are, are held at a low level. We mentioned the narrow leadership in the market and the fact that you said that there are a lot of other opportunities, that there are a lot of, you know, good companies that are selling at, you know, very attractive values. So um, tell me where you're seeing opportunities. Yeah, I would say that in, in this market, and, and this may sound um, bizarre given the fact that people think the market is way ahead of itself and all, but I think in this market, even at 3,000, you can pretty much throw a dart at the S&P 500 and wherever it lands, let's put it this way, I, you know, eight out of the 10 places it lands, you'll probably do okay. And there may be some things that, that it you know, lands poorly, like if you'd landed on Hertz, that wouldn't have worked out too well. But by and large, I mean, I think that all of the all of the fangs, even Netflix, if you have a little bit longer time horizon, but all of those are reasonably priced, certainly on more than a one or two year basis. And you know, they're very powerful businesses with great cash flows. So I think you can own I think you know own those.
So, Bill, one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio? Well, I think anybody that doesn't own Amazon, you, you think you, you might have missed it, but its dominance is even greater than it, than it has been. And uh, there's a brand new book out called Bezonomics, uh, which, uh, which goes into, into great detail about how Jeff and the team at Amazon think about their business. And, and when you read that, which I just finished a couple of days ago, I mean, we own Amazon's, you know, our biggest position or second biggest, depending, and uh, on on the day. And I'm like, well, I think we're too small in that one. So uh, it's 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 so compelling. Bill Miller, thanks so much for being with us on Wealth Track, and we are going to see you again next week. So stay right where you are. Thanks, Bill. Great, thank you. At the close of every Wealth Track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is stick with your investment discipline. As J.P. Morgan said, the markets will fluctuate. That they certainly have. But that is no reason for you to follow suit. Know your risk tolerance. Stay with your asset allocation. Rebalance when it gets out of whack. And make sure you are diversified among risk assets like stocks, safe assets like short-term treasuries, and hedges against disasters like gold. The market will do what it will. You can decide how you will behave based on your objectives, needs, and temperament. Once a plan is in place, the best strategy is to let it work and sometimes sit on your hands. Next week, in part two of our interview with Bill Miller, he shares his bullish perspective and how he is putting it to work. In this week's extra feature on WealthTrack.com, Miller shared how the pandemic has changed his professional and personal life. Thank you for reaching out to us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. We so appreciate your spending time with us, especially as we celebrate this July 4th weekend. Make it and the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and a productive one. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, a Leg Mason company, Miller Value Funds, Royce and Associates, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. On the next Wealth Track, a rare in-depth interview with legendary investor Bill Miller on why he is bullish and where he is finding opportunities. Bill Miller on the next Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. Hello, I'm Consuelo Mack. Every week on Wealth Track, we sit down with great investors and financial thought leaders to talk in depth about strategies you need to build and protect your wealth over the long term. Join us on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track.